minutes after 16-year-old Brenda Spencer started shooting, police officers arrived at the scene ready to take any necessary action in order to avoid any further bloodshed. On the 29th of January, 1979, in San Diego, California, 16-year-old Brenda Ann Spencer was armed with a rifle and began firing at the Grover Cleveland Elementary School of the San Diego Unified School District shooting anyone that was in sight. After neighbors, nearby residents, and all the school children were safely evacuated, police mapped out their strategy. Prepared for either lengthy negotiations or for an assault, police took every precaution to keep onlookers away from the line of fire. Officers from the San Diego Police Department were soon at the scene, trying to prevent more casualties and to protect the school, but regretfully, amongst those injured at the school were two members of staff, as well as eight children. When confronted about her actions and asking why she had done this, Brenda unemotionally replied, I don't like Mondays. This livens up the day. This is the story of Brenda Spencer and the Cleveland Elementary School shooting. Brenda Ann Spencer was born on the 3rd of April, 1966 to her parents, Wallace and Dot Spencer. Brenda's early life had many challenges. She grew up in San Diego, California, and her family struggled financially for many years, and her parents divorced when she was very young. After her parents' divorce, nine-year-old Brenda went to live with her father, Wallace. Her father was an avid hunter, and he worked as a university technician and was described as an antisocial loner who lived in poverty. Wallace and Brenda lived in a house which was located across the street from the Grover Cleveland Elementary School on Lake Atlin Avenue in the San Carlos neighborhood. At 16, Brenda was a 5'2", thin, freckled-faced teenager with the long bright red hair and her classmates described her as pretty crummy looking and as a shy tomboy with few friends. Her teachers described Brenda as an introvert with her high school friends saying that she was pretty quiet and unhappy that her mother wasn't around. A broken family, poverty and an unstable environment from an early age had a huge influence on her childhood and made a great impact in her early development. Whilst growing up, Brenda demonstrated signs of emotional distress and she displayed signs of behavioural issues. Brenda's neighbours reported that she had a history of petty theft, drug abuse and skipping school. Her school's attendance records showed that she was often in trouble in the little time that she actually spent there. Because of this, Brenda was referred to a facility for problem students and it was here in 1978 that staff at the facility informed Brenda's parents that she showed suicidal behaviour. Brenda also expressed an impulse to seek attention and infamy. She would often tell her friends about her obsession with lawlessness and crimes, as well as her eagerness to be part of something extraordinary, something that would make her famous. Classmates and those who knew her later said that Brenda was vocal about her dislike towards law enforcement. She had talked about shooting police, saying that this would be something big that would get her on television and that she fantasized in the past about being a sniper. Acting on this desire in the summer of 1978, Brenda was arrested for breaking and entering, burglary, and for shooting the windows of Cleveland Elementary with a BB gun. Later in December of that same year, 
Brenda underwent a psychiatric evaluation by her probation officer, and the results showed concerns for her mental health, and it was recommended that Brenda be admitted into a mental hospital due to increased signs of depression. However, her father refused. School staff had also previously told Brenda's parents that they believed she was a suicide risk, and once again, Wallace ignored this observation and told school officials to leave his family alone. Although the reasons behind Brenda's mental health were uncertain at the time, it was clear that her actions showed signs of a troubled teen, and her behavior called for an intervention. Her father, Wallace, however, ignored these signs and shockingly decided to give his daughter a semi-automatic rifle for Christmas that year. The rifle was equipped with telescopic sight and also 500 rounds of ammunition, and this was the very same rifle that Brenda Spencer used just a few weeks later. Brenda later explained that for Christmas, she had asked for a radio and Wallace had bought her a gun. She said, I felt that he wanted me to kill myself. Unfortunately, Brenda's search for infamy came at about 8.30am on the morning of the 29th of January, 1979. Are there any kids hurt? The shooting began around 8.30am. A sniper was firing random shots at school children on their way to class at Cleveland Elementary. Eight children and two adults, the school principal and a custodian, were felled quickly. The principal and custodian would die. Armed with her new semi-automatic rifle, Brenda Spencer, opened fire towards the Grover Cleveland Elementary School that was just across the street from her house, aiming at the students who were arriving for class, 150 feet away. Her window overlooked the school grounds, and from here she was able to carelessly fire away at anyone in sight. She began shooting at school children who were waiting for 53-year-old school principal Burton Rag to open the gates. Brenda fired, 36 rounds, 11 of which hit their mark. Amongst the casualties were the school's principal, Burton Rag, and the 56-year-old school custodian, Mike Sucher. Both of them were sadly caught in the line of fire and were killed in their efforts to protect the school students as they tried to help and get them to safety. Eight children, aged 9 to 13, were also injured in the attack, but thankfully survived. Brenda aimed her gun at nine-year-old Cam Miller, just because he was wearing blue, which was her favorite color. Cam Miller had a bullet pierce him from front to back. Nine-year-old Monica Selvig was also shot, with a bullet piercing through her stomach and closely missing her spine as it exited her back. Mary Clark, aged nine, was shot through her lower torso. Another student, Julie Robles, had a gunshot graze her side with the bullet passing through her and just missing her kidneys. The San Diego Police Department quickly arrived at the scene to secure the area and to confront the shooter. 28-year-old police officer Robert Robb was also shot in the neck as he arrived at the scene, but also thankfully survived. The bullet went in and it nicked my juggler vein and it bounced off my shoulder blade and had lodged against my spine. Although the police SWAT force arrived, Brenda managed to lock herself in her house, obstructing their access. This allowed her to continue shooting at the school from a distance, and the police reported a total of 36 shots fired, and the shooting lasted roughly 16 minutes. However, 
the San Diego Police Department were able to prevent further casualties when patrol officer Ted Kazanak stopped a garbage truck and drove it into the parking lot near the school entrance, thus obstructing Brenda's line of fire and serving as a shield as the wounded were removed from the scene. After the first SWAT team moved into position, the long waiting game started. Police had the situation in hand now. While SWAT units approached and surrounded the house, police, parents, and friends negotiated with Brenda Spencer on the phone. She was armed with a 22 caliber semi-automatic with a scope and may have taken drugs and alcohol. She at first refused to talk surrender, claiming she could hold out for a week. The confrontation between Brenda and the police continued for over six hours, after which Brenda finally surrendered and she came out of the house at around 2.30 p.m. and dropped her weapon on the driveway. After hours of waiting, the negotiations did pay off, and SWAT officers and police could congratulate themselves on the fact that no more blood was spilled after the initial shootings. She came out of her house after being promised a Burger King meal by police primary negotiator, Officer Paul Olson. Brenda Spencer was apprehended and held at the San Diego City Jail. SWAT officers escorted her from the house to custody, and the long and terrible San Carlos sniper siege was over. One of the most disturbing points from this tragic day is when Gus Stevens, a reporter from the San Diego Evening Tribune, questioned Brenda about her actions during the shooting. Reporters were able to reach her on the phone while attempting to call neighbors in the area. That morning, while police were trying to negotiate with Brenda, Reporters were able to reach her on the phone whilst attempting to call neighbors in the area as they were trying to find out more about the shooting. Over the phone, she casually told Gus Stevens, with no remorse or sorrow, I don't like Mondays. This livens up the day. I just started shooting for the fun of it. Brenda, what you're really remembered for is you saying, I hate Mondays. Did you say, I hate Mondays? I don't remember saying that. Um, right now we're trying to find, get some evidence that, that I did say that. I'd like to hear the tape. And it, it really influenced how people saw me and, and thought about, you know, the whole case. It, it's just, I, I'd like to know that I actually did say that if I did. If you said that, it makes you sound cold-blooded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, on PCP you're liable, you're liable to say anything. She also told police negotiators that the school children and school staff she shot were like a herd of cows, making them easy pickings, like shooting ducks on a pond. It was clear to everyone that Brenda Spencer had zero regret for what she had just done. Sadly, amongst those injured, 53-year-old Principal Burton Rag and 56-year-old Mike Sucha lost their lives. But fortunately, the eight children who were injured and Officer Robert Robb were taken to the local hospital, where they soon recovered. Some of the kids were discharged the same day after treatment. However, the psychological trauma of this experience is something I'm sure they all had to live with for the rest of their lives. A little more than an hour after she was brought in, 10-year-old Crystal Hardy went home with her parents. She had escaped with a minor injury and a bad fright. I got shot and then Mr. Brown said, um, Crystal, I mean, they said, he said, um, Duck, you guys run! Then I got shot and then I went in the nurse's office and I was bleeding a lot. I just was laying there. And then the policeman came and brought me here. You must have been really scared. I was. It hurt. 
the bullet that went through her wrist didn't harm anything. It went through, didn't hit the bone, or we're just praising the Lord. You're lucky. Take care. Once in police custody, Brenda Spencer pleaded guilty, and despite her age, she was charged as an adult. Brenda was convicted for a mass shooting, double murder, and attempted pedicide, and she was given two counts of first-degree murder. Additionally, nine counts of attempted murder were dismissed. However, she was also charged with several counts of assault with a deadly weapon for injuring the eight students and the police officer during the shooting. Brenda Spencer was spared the death penalty because of her age. However, a day after her 18th birthday, on the 4th of April 1980, Superior Court Judge Byron McMillan sentenced her to 25 years to life in prison with a chance of parole, and Brenda showed no emotion to the ruling. Prosecutor Chuck Patrick and defense attorney Michael McClinn already had worked out the sentence with Judge Byron McMillan, aided by a new law that allows the Department of Corrections to sentence defendants like Spencer to California Youth Authority custody until she's 25, then go to state prison. Over the years, Brenda's parole was continuously denied the parole boards justifying their decisions each time by citing that Brenda was in no state to be released into the general public due to her psychotic and unfit mental state. During her parole reading in 1993, Brenda said she had hoped police would shoot her during the attack. She also said that she had been under the influence of drugs and alcohol during the shooting. So the whole thing to you, 14 years later, is just this drugged out haze, basically. Yeah, it's really, it's really broken up and fragmented. It's, uh, I, I can't sit there and, and tell you, well, at this time I did this and at this time, you know, it's just little bits and pieces that have come back over the years. Um, like the week prior, that one, I, I don't really have many memories from that week ahead of the incident. And the week after I was asleep, I was coming down off the the street drugs, and even that week, I don't really have a whole lot of memories of it. It's like I slept a lot and I was going through withdrawals and things. However, toxicology tests done at the time had reported no signs of narcotics when she was taken into custody. Additionally, despite the empty beer and whiskey bottles found around the house when police officers detained Brenda, she did not appear to be intoxicated. The alcohol bottles presumably belonged to her father, Wallace. However, Brenda claimed that reports were falsified during her legal process and that there was, in fact, another independent drug test that did pick up signs of drugs. But apparently, this report was not shown in court. There's two sets of toxicology reports. The ones that went to court with me stated that I was on, on no drugs or alcohol. And then there's an independent lab tests from the same blood samples that show I had blood, uh, blood alcohol levels and a lethal amount of drugs in my system, and that was never raised in court. Including PCP? There's no test right now for PCP, but the other drugs and the alcohol together on their, on their own were a fatal dosage. Brenda's claim, however, is quite difficult to believe, as even her defense attorney denies there being an intoxication defense in place. We were not aware of any PCP 
use at the, in terms of around the time of the offense. Brenda did have a abnormal brainwave. Uh, she was diagnosed as being epileptic, and we believed uh, that uh, the reason for what occurred was more of a result of her being in a disassociated state than any kind of uh, intoxication uh, defense or illegal drug usage. In 1998, 35-year-old Brenda withdrew her request for parole, opting instead for an additional three years until her next chance at a parole hearing. Her state-appointed attorney, Keith Santon, explained that this was a tactical decision. However, the San Diego County Prosecutor, Deputy District Attorney, Andrea Crisanti, was already prepared to advise the parole board that Brenda Spencer remained a public threat stating that, we think she should still do life. She killed two people. How can she repay that? How could we take that risk of killing again if she were released? Brenda's next opportunity for parole came in 2001, and at the hearing, Brenda accused her father of beating her, as well as sexual abuse. Now, in regards to your family, are you still in contact with any of your family? I'm still in contact with my father. What's your relationship with your father? We've gotten to be friends. And that was not the case when you were younger? No, when I was younger, we had a lot of problems. There's a lot of abuse. What do you remember in regards to abuse by your father? I remember being hit in the face a lot, being hit in the ribs, being um, yelled at, called names. Well, I remember him coming home from work and being all mad and smacking me in the head. And, I don't know, different nights when he would just almost rape me. You say almost? What do you mean almost? Well, it was like that. Like he did. I don't understand. Like he would um, touch me inappropriately. Her father, however, denied the allegations and the parole board chairman doubted the validity of her claims. Well, as Brenda did say in her parole hearing last week that you sexually abused her she what she said in her parole hearing that you sexually abused her that you sodomized her Brenda said that in her hearing on Tuesday well it's not true I mean her exact words and I'm just telling you what well I okay I mean yes yeah. that you almost raped her no well that never happened you know I would take a lie detector on that I never did anything like that. This was because it was pointed out that she had not previously spoken about the allegations. In 2005, there was an incident of self-harm involving Brenda that was cited by the San Diego Deputy District Attorney, Richard Sachs. It was noted that this incident took place four years earlier, when Brenda's ex-girlfriend was released from prison. Richard Sachs said that following the breakup with the other inmate, Brenda had mutilated herself by branding her body with a heated paperclip, scratching the words unforgiven and alone into her own skin. He said, that demonstrates she can't handle the bad things that happened to her. Why courage and pride? And that's not actually what it says. It's written in runes. Okay. And I think they made a mistake when they read it. Okay, what does it say? It says unforgiven and alone. I'm sorry, what? Unforgiven and alone. Following this incident, a two-member parole board rejected Brenda's bid for freedom. For Brenda, who was 43 at the time, 
This was the third time her bid for parole had been rejected. The deputy district attorney continued by saying that Brenda came across as fragile, someone who's not altogether. Adding to this statement, Brenda says she doesn't remember the crime and she provided no insight into what happened. Do you remember much about what occurred? Uh, not a lot. I'm, I'm sure I did it. I just don't remember everything in sequence. Do you remember the shooting itself? I don't remember the shooting itself. You don't? No. Right. I, I don't remember it, but I'm sure it happened. I'm sure I did it. Brenda was again denied by the parole board in 2009, 2014, and 2016. The parole board noted that she was psychotic and therefore unfit to be released. The parole board again ruled that Brenda was unsuited for parole in August of 2022 citing that she would not be eligible for a hearing for a further three years. And so, to this day, Brenda Spencer remains in jail and she is currently housed at the California Institution for Women in Chino. Brenda's next chance for a parole hearing will take place in 2025. As with any mass shooting, the Grover Cleveland Elementary School attack had an irreversible impact and changed the lives of the victims, their families and the community. Brenda's actions had a huge ripple effect and affected many people as well as generations to come afterwards. Cam Miller, the student wounded in the attack, became a San Diego County probation officer. He said that he has suffered emotional pain and that the events of that January morning were very vivid in his mind. Others affected have described the psychological after-effect as a post-traumatic stress syndrome, one that not only has affected the victims for many years, but also their parents. The Cleveland Elementary School shooting remains relevant still to this day. It stands as a tragic but defining turning point in how school shootings are looked at by society. This incident was, in part, one of the first modern school shootings of its kind. Brenda was quoted at a parole hearing saying that, with every school shooting, I feel I'm partially responsible. What if they got that idea from me? What if they got the idea from what I did? This shooting also played an important role as it highlighted the dangers concerning public acts of violence in schools. It also resulted in the rethinking of safety measures for public buildings. It brought forward discussions regarding gun control as well as mental health. The safe storage of firearms was not as high a priority as it is now, and as a result, at the time, keeping guns locked away was not the norm. Also, compared to today, in the 70s, there was not as much awareness surrounding mental health issues, and there was little support and understanding surrounding mental well-being. Many people suffered in silence and did not seek help due to the stigma associated with mental health concerns. Regrettably, Brenda's experience of a dysfunctional family structure, an underlying psychological state in need of attention, and an irresponsible access to deadly weapons resulted in a disaster that perhaps had the potential to be prevented. Wallace, there are some people who say that you were responsible for the shooting because you bought her the gun for Christmas. What would you say to those people? Uh oh. Well, I'd say it's, you know, it's none of their damn business that I bought a 
rifle for her Christmas because I thought she was ready for that. And we used to go up in the mountains and she used to target shoot up there. So, did Brenda ask for a gun for Christmas? No, she didn't. Dot said you shouldn't have given her the gun because she thought that Brenda had become suicidal. Did you think Brenda had become suicidal? Uh, no, I had not seen any grounds for that. I don't know where that statement came from. Uh, you know, how do you know if somebody's suicidal or not? I don't know. Maybe she would not have shot anyone if emotional problems had been addressed beforehand, particularly when concerns were raised early on by teachers and police prior to the shooting. Unfortunately, she never received the help that she truly needed until it was too late. It is true that Brenda was a product of a broken home and bad parenting. She had an abusive father who showed total negligence in giving her a gun. But many other children also go through similar childhoods, and the majority of them do not end up doing what Brenda Spencer did that day. Brenda's mother, Dot, later claimed that she had suspected that Wallace and Brenda had an unhealthy relationship and that she couldn't afford to fight for her custody after the divorce. Uh, no, I couldn't really afford the attorney that I'd have to get and what have you to, to do it. While serving her sentence, Brenda later told prison officials that she had felt unwanted by her family and envied children who had a family protecting them. She admitted, I was kind of pretty much a screwed up kid at the time. I had a lot of problems going on at home problems at home that likely prompted her to abuse drugs at an early age and created a hostility towards authority figures as well as isolating her from society in general. During Brenda's time in prison, she was diagnosed and given medication for epilepsy and she also received treatment for depression. In addition, whilst in police custody, tests revealed that she had suffered an injury to the temporal lobe of her brain perhaps attributed to a bike incident when she was younger. After the school shooting, a plaque was erected at Cleveland Elementary School to honour the victims. However, the school, as well as many others in the area, was closed in 1983 due to declining enrollment. In 2018, the school was demolished, making way for a housing development, but the plaque was relocated to a different corner of the former school grounds at Lake Atlin Avenue and Lake Angela Drive. It's hard to wonder whether Brenda will ever adapt to life outside prison, having spent most of her life now behind bars. When you do uh, get out of prison, what are your hopes, what are your dreams for the future? Basically, they're the same as, I guess, everybody. I'd like to have a normal life. You know, I came in really, really young, so I don't really know what it's like out there, you know, and dealing with the world as an adult. And I'd like to go to school and get a job and possibly work with some kids or in, in a program or something. If she's ever released, will she ever reach another breaking point just because she finds herself having another boring Monday? Whatever your thoughts are on this case, the events that unfolded on that day are so tragic. Two people lost their lives and nine more were injured and many, many people were impacted by this horrendous crime. Whether Brenda could have been prevented from committing this crime, she herself still made the decision of picking up the rifle that day and shooting at the school. That was her decision and her decision alone. But you know, I sure am not one to, to blame someone else, you know, unless her father 
was covering her hand with his and making her pull the trigger, I'm blaming Brenda, no matter how weird her family was. And as always, I'll finish off this case by saying, rest in peace, Burton Rag and Mike Sutcher.